0: Okay. Yeah. Again, just to remind those of you who uh, have missed sessions, we're actually recording these sessions. So if you ever want to catch up on Revelation during the summer holidays, then uh, see me, and uh, you can have it in CD or whatever form we can do it in. Um, this is the fourth, fourth of a series of five that I'm doing on the Book of Revelation. We're having to cover huge chunks of material, and I always find that very frustrating. But I hope I'm giving you at least the big picture of what this book is all about and the way that it uh, works out in, in, in the world. I keep trying to think of analogies. The analogy for this week is, uh, you know, our fantasy football league, which is getting really exciting now. Um, yeah. <laughs> I did really well this year, yesterday, I'm re. Really... <laughs> I never thought I'd cheer a Spanish goalkeeper saving a penalty, but boy... <laughs> It's like, you know, it's like two kind of parallel leagues, isn't it? You know, you've got the reality and the fantasy running at the same time. And the fantasy has actually become more exciting than the reality now, I think. (laughs) Uh, and so, it, and it's, it's a bit like that with Revelation, where it's not fantasy, but it's what's going on up here, and what's going on down there, and what's going up, the, up on, on up here is actually much more exciting than what's going on down here, but the two are kind of in some way functioning together. So anyway, there's an analogy for you this week, is uh, it's a bit like the Fantasy Football League, and we'll see who wins uh, by uh, this time next week. Well, not quite this time next week, because it'll be the final this time next week, almost. Um, but yeah. Are you dregs, Andrew? Right, okay. (laughs) I've been trying to work out who that is. Right, now I know. (laughs) Now I know who I've got to beat. (laughs) Okay, Revelation. Uh, If you remember, all the way back to the introduction, um, I'm looking at this book uh, in terms of when it was written, the circumstances in which it was written, uh, which were persecution towards the end of the first century, And it was written to encourage the church as people were literally losing their lives for the sake of the faith. And John, who himself had been thrown into exile on the island of Patmos, wanted to write a letter that would encourage and help the churches who were under severe persecution to keep going and to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. He could have written a letter, he could have written a theological treatise. Instead, he chooses to write this incredible book, in an apocalyptic form which would have been familiar to the people he was writing, using symbols and images that they would have been familiar with and using them to tell this incredible story of the battle that's going on between heaven and earth, between God and evil, between Jesus and Satan. And he uses these vivid images and these vivid symbols uh, to point us to the reality that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King and one day the whole world will see that uh, for sure. He does it using all kinds of symbols. In the second week, we looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets, the way the seven seals encourage the churches. Seals are a sign of authenticity, of genuineness. And so what he's saying is, whatever you're going through, these are just ways of God showing you're real people, real people of God. The trumpets are a symbol of warning. That as these things are happening, they're going out as warnings to the world to turn to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And then last week, we looked at these kind of representations of evil, Uh, the beast, the dragon, um, the Antichrist. And we thought about this battle that's constantly going on throughout history between good and evil, light and darkness, between God and the world. And that even though at times it seems like evil is winning, God is always in control and God calls his people to persevere in faith and in expectation. Well, this evening's talk is entitled The End of the World, and we're coming to the climax of the book now. The end of the world isn't the end because there's something beyond that, and we're going to have a really exciting time next week as we explore what lies beyond that. But for now, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, mainly Chapter 20 under this theme of the end of the world. Now, Tim read uh, the first part of that uh, reading from Chapter 19 earlier on, so that's good, that's helpful. But just let's just read something from Chapter 20, again, to give you a flavor of uh, what this book is all about and the way that it, uh, it speaks of these things. So I'm going to read chapter 20 of Revelation. It's dead easy to find in your Bible right at the end, of course. Chapter 20. One of the most famous chapters of Revelation, controversial chapter, but uh, hopefully one that we can get into this evening. Chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that time, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign for him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people in the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. (laughs) Okay. You may have uh, seen the image of uh, an old man walking the streets of London with a sandwich board over his head saying, the end is nigh. (laughs) And of course, those figures became objects of ridicule um, when they were quite popular. I don't see them so much now. Well, the method was probably not the most innovative and most creative and most likely to draw attention. Uh, And the way that it was phrased was probably not the most subtle. But nevertheless, it had something to say about the future that God sees for the world uh, and for the church. Now, of course, the church has lost credibility due to some extreme views and some extreme ways of portraying it. But nevertheless, Revelation, when approached correctly, Points us to how we should approach the future of the world in the right way. And it does point us to a time when the world as we know it will come to an end and a new world will come into existence. What are the ideas behind this biblical teaching of the end of the world? Three things there on your handouts. Firstly, this history is moving towards a purpose. History is moving towards a purpose. The Bible does not present history as cyclical. That is a something that keeps going on round and round, round and round. The Bible presents history as a linear thing, something that is moving towards a purpose, towards a climax. So, for example, in uh, Revelation 22, which we look at next week in, chapter, in verses 12 and 13, it says, Behold, I am coming soon, that's Jesus' return, my reward is with me and I will give everything, everyone according to what he has done, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. See what that's saying? That's saying that God was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. He started it off at the beginning and he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to climax at the end. God has clear plans and purposes for history as we just thought about when, uh, in one of those verses that Paul shared with us. The plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. God has plans for history, and they are part of his purpose. Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning at the end. He was there at creation. He will be there at uncreation. He will be there at recreation. Jesus is part of this creative process. And history is moving towards a purpose. Uh, I did a lot of history as part of my postgraduate study, and we had a professor of history, and he used to say to us, "Do you know, history is just one damn thing after another. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, it's far more than that. We believe that history is about having a purpose, and that purpose being worked out. It's not just random. Something is happening, and God is in control. And and that comes as as an application to us as individuals, We see ourselves as a purpose-driven church, that we believe God has given us a purpose. And we see it as our goal in life to discover that purpose and to fulfill God's purposes right here in Duckingfield. And we encourage everyone who is a part of this church to discover that for themselves, to discover the purpose that God has for them. And we believe that purpose is found in God and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So history is moving towards a purpose individually, but also nationally and as a world. Second idea that lies behind this is that the kingdom is moving towards fulfillment. Now, this is a very difficult idea, but one that was very important in Jesus' understanding of what he was doing. And I've just given one verse as an example there, uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse uh, 14, which says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, And then the end will come. When Jesus talks of the kingdom, he's not talking about a physical place, a physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is where God's rule takes place in people's lives. When Jesus came and preached and healed and taught, his kingdom began to advance in people's lives. As people gave their lives over to God's rule... As people lived on the basis of Jesus' teaching, so the kingdom began and began to advance. And he said, the kingdom of God is among you. It was there. It was happening in front of their eyes. But Jesus also believed, and that verse clarifies that, that there will be a time when this kingdom will keep on advancing through history. But there will be a time when that kingdom comes to fulfillment. And that time is at the end, when Jesus returns So whilst we are very privileged to be part of the kingdom of God, we are working towards that kingdom, coming to fulfillment, coming to fruition. And that will come when Jesus comes back for his people. We look forward to that, of course, but we work for God's kingdom to be seen now. Again, this is a motivation to us to keep working to advance God's kingdom as we serve him here. And then the final idea that I just want to share with you is that Jesus is returning for his people. And uh, that verse in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 relates to the ascension. That is the when Jesus, having been crucified, having risen again, having shown himself to people, ascended back to be with his father in heaven. And this is the observation that uh, that was made about that in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. It said, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So that verse promises that Jesus will return personally. And you see, this is something else. The second coming is not just an event. It's an event that is centered on a person. And that person is Jesus. And essentially it's about Jesus returning for his people. The second coming, and I'll mention this later on, is actually relational. It's about the way we relate to Jesus. And that's why we call one another to a deeper personal relationship with Jesus. Because our personal relationship with Jesus is in the end what it's all about. And will reflect the life that we enjoy in eternity. So this is not just an event. This is the personal return of Jesus that that scripture uh, teaches. So those are some of the ideas that would have been on John's mind as he wrote these things in uh, Revelation. And it's within this framework that Revelation begins to answer the questions that many people have about why the world is the way it is and will that ever change. Now, of course, these are not definitive answers. They're couched in very difficult ideas and images. But nevertheless, when we work with them, they just help to point us towards some answers to some of these big questions that people ask. And the first question is this. Why doesn't God get involved in world events? Why doesn't God get involved in world events? And the response to that that Revelation gives us is the final event of history is in God's Timing, And that's what uh, chapter 19, verse 11, through to chapter 20, verse 6, are about, albeit in a very symbolic uh, form. I put a question there. Will it take a thousand years or a day? You may notice as you read Revelation that it mentions this period of a thousand years. If you come from the sort of background that I come from, then everyone starts getting very excited at this point. Um, I, I would just say... And I'll explain that in a minute or two's time. I'll just say this. It struck me as I was reading that verse in Peter, and you have to read these kind of passages in conjunction with Revelation, really. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So I think that gives a scope for treating this period possibly symbolically rather than literally. This passage seems, on first reading, to suggest that the end of the world will be a long drawn-out affair, Over a thousand year period. By the way, the millennium, which was a Jewish idea, um, was based around the idea that uh, uh, as God created the world in six days or seven days, so the world would last for a thousand times the number of days that God took. So, six days of creation, multiplied by a thousand, you get to six thousand. God's day of rest, another Day, another thousand seven thousand, And so in in traditional Jewish literature before Jesus came, it was seen that the world would last from the point of creation to the end of time 7,000 years. And the millennium was the final thousand years of the 7,000 years that they believed that the world would last. And so that's the background uh, to this passage. It was a familiar Jewish idea, and uh, John takes it and doesn't apply it literally, but applies it symbolically. Right, I, I'm not sure what to do, I'll do it. I, I'm going to give you a potted guide here to millennium, millennialism, okay? And the reason I do this is that actually it's really important to understand uh, where these ideas come from and the impact they have. This might sound like theological theory, but it's actually very influential over the way that certain people see these things uh, panning out. Okay, I'm going to use my board here. This view is what's called premillennialism, okay? And this is the view that many people uh, have held over a, a period of time. The idea is this. Jesus died. Tell you what, let's use a red one. Symbolic. Jesus died. The church then comes into existence. And we're in this period now. This thing has... We've lost the thing off the back here, so therefore twists as you write on it. <laughs> The church then came into existence, and that's the period we're in now. But they believe that at some point in the future, there will be a period when Jesus will return with the people who have died in Christ. And he will set up a millennial kingdom, which will last for a thousand years, which will be on earth At the end of that thousand year period, there will possibly be... Well, there will be a short period of evil, as Satan is released, as in the chains being released from... uh, there in Revelation. And after that brief period of defeat of evil, Jesus will return once again, and we will then move into the eternal age. Now, the catch is this, and this is why it's important. During this thousand year period... This, by the way, is called the rapture, in case you come across that phrase. During this thousand year period, these people also believe that the Old Testament promises that were made to Israel will come to fruition during this period. That this rule of Christ on earth will be centred on Jerusalem, it will involve the Jewish people regathering to Israel, it will involve them converting en masse to Jesus... And bizarrely, some of them believe it will involve the reinstitution of the temple as well. And uh, during this period, it will be some great peace, prosperity, the return of Israel. And that will be God's earthly reign. Now, you might think this is a bit strange. You might think this is just theological theory. But this idea influences American, American foreign policy. You might wonder why successive US administrations, particularly Republican, are so pro-Israel. This is the answer. They believe that God has not finished with Israel as a nation. They believe that there's a time coming when the Jewish people will take on an incredible significance. And therefore they believe that in order to uh, promote that, they need to put money and military uh, means and support into the nation of Israel As it is at the moment. Because they believe that that nation will be the fulfilment during this period. Now I say, this is the reason why I'm saying this. This is why Revelation is such a a powerful book, but also such a dangerous book. It actually affects something as significant as American foreign policy in the Middle East. That's that's basically why America is so pro-Israel. There are other things as well, but this is basically why. Because they see the millennium as being the period during which Israel will have great significance, and therefore they feel they need to support it uh, in order for that uh, to happen. Uh, and that's called premillennialism, and that was uh, very popular in the church circles where I grew up, and uh, has, has been popular in other ways since. Now, there's a, there's a few other ideas, so if that's... Oh, <laughs> so if that's pre, then there's another theory called postmillennialism, that looks at things slightly differently. So, we have the church coming as a result of the, uh, of the death of Jesus. But rather than seeing almost two comings of Jesus, they see uh, one coming of Jesus at some point in the future. However, they believe we are already, or the millennium is a period in history That the millennium is a a period where the church will advance, where people will come to Christ, where the church will come to prominence in world affairs. And they believe that that period, whilst we may not be able to mark it very specifically, will take place in the context of history. That will culminate in a, a period, a brief period of what they call tribulation, followed by the return of Christ, and then we move straight into the eternal age. Now again, just a little bit of history, this was very important to British foreign policy in the 19th century. Do you want to know why uh, the church sent out thousands and thousands of missionaries? It was because they believed that the millennium was beginning, that the gospel needed to be preached, and therefore the church sent out thousands and thousands of missionaries to areas of the country, to areas of the world that had never heard the gospel. Also, interestingly, the church was at the forefront of social reform during this period. Remember Wilberforce? abolishing slavery, Law, setting up Sunday schools, building education. Uh, All kinds of things were happening. And they believed at that time that the millennium, they were in the millennium. They believed that Christ was about to come back again. And therefore that was a great motivation to the kind of work that went on. Now actually there's, there's good things to be said there. It got people out with the gospel. It got the church involved in social reform. And uh, for a period of time, post-millennialism was very popular. Because it was seen as being fulfilled before people's very eyes. Then you had a series of events that blew their world apart. You had Darwin promoting his theory of evolution. You had uh, a scientific reform movement that went along with that. But most significantly of all, you had the First World War. And at that point, post-millennialism... ...lost its popularity. It was seen that it it was wrong. It was seen that they couldn't... ...no longer fulfil this golden age... ...of the church. And it lost popularity. And certainly by the time of the Second World War... ...it had grown uh, into disrepute. So the reason I tell you those things... ...I I find it interesting. You might find it incredibly boring. But I find it really interesting. But it's the way that these ideas... ...influence the way that we live. Now there is one other form of... uh, ...millennialism... And I'll come clean. This is what I believe. It's called A-millennialism. A means without. And uh, what I believe is this. That the millennium is not to be seen as a literal period. It's rather seen as the period of the church. That they're actually one and the same thing. Right from the beginning to the end. Now, it's different from post-millennialism, because post-millennialism only sees it as a specific period within church history. Uh, I believe that it happened, that the millennium started when, uh, when Jesus started his ministry, and it will end when Jesus returns. It is not a literal thousand year period, it's a symbol, a symbol of the work of God going on in the world. There will be victories, there will be defeats, but God's work is moving forward to a point in history where he will return for his people. There's another form of millennialism called pan-millennialism. They just panned a lot of (laughs) them. But anyway, that's that's just a pocket guide to millennialism and what it might mean. But as I say, the view that I take is that this this period, this thousand year period, is is, is symbolic of the work of God uh, going on in the world. My biggest problem with premillennialism is it turns the second coming into a long drawn out affair with in effect two comings. And the scripture always talks about the day of the Lord, and when you read um, the other stuff, like uh, Jesus comes, like Jesus talked about coming like a thief in the night. It's sudden. It seems to be a one-off event. And so I struggle to believe, apart from the Israel stuff, how that could be a, a, an interpretation of what is going on in uh, scripture. As I say, Second Peter three verses eight to thirteen uh, you really do need to read that uh, in conjunction with uh, Revelation. Chapter 20, and uh, it talks there. It says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone could come to repentance. And then it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There's an immediacy there in those verses that seems to me to suggest that it's a, a one-off event Not a long, drawn-out process. But the point is this. God promises that he will get involved in history in a decisive way. And the call of the New Testament is for us to serve him, for us to be alert in God's service, for us to be active in God's service, for us to be encouraging one another to holiness, and for us to be encouraging one another to look forward with hope. I could talk about that all night, but I won't. So we'll move on very quickly. Number two, why doesn't God do something about the evil in the world? And the only answer to this is that the final destruction of evil is in God's hands. Again, these are very graphic images that, uh, that John uses of the lake of fire and um, people being thrown into it. Please take those uh, symbolically uh, rather than literally. Um, but they're very clear ways of portraying that God will destroy evil, that God will destroy evil. And actually, this links in with some of the things that I was talking about. You see, my premillennialist friends would say to me, how can you describe the current period as the millennium? When we see so much evil around us, the church seems to be under threat all the time, how can you describe that as a millennium Period, And the only answer to this, well, not the only one, but the most significant one, um, is a verse in Mark, chapter 3 and verse 27, where Jesus gives this image of a strong man. And he's, and he's speaking about Satan in this passage. And he says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And then it says, verse 27 of Mark 3. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Very strange thing to say. But most people are agreed that what Jesus is talking about there was the way that his ministry here on earth was like a restraining process on evil. Binding up the strong man, Satan. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus was ministering, he cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. People changed their lives and followed his teaching. And what that is saying is that In those things, in those events, in the changed lives of the people who saw Jesus and responded to Jesus, it was as though Satan was being bound up. His influence was being reduced. And that has gone on throughout history. As people have turned their lives over to Jesus, as people have experienced forgiveness and healing and hope, then so the, in in, in in one sense, so the, Barriers of evil are being pushed back. And that links in, you see, with the imagery that uh, John uses in Revelation 20, where he talks about Satan being chained, exactly the same phrase as Jesus uses in Mark's Gospel, suggesting that this is what what John had in mind when he talked about it. So that's the view that I'm kind of taking here, that what this is describing is not some event that's in the future, But this is describing the process of history that we're engaged in at the moment, where thus there will be victory, but there will also be defeats sometimes. But that at the end of it, there will be a final destruction of evil in God's hands and a final triumph of Jesus over Satan, even though that victory has already been won. It's very vivid imagery. It's difficult to comprehend. But again, the battle imagery is what lies behind these very graphic visions that John records for us. And just looking forward, and I'll speak about this next week, but what does that destruction of evil in God's hands result in? Well, 21 verse 4 says, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The final destruction of evil means no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. A new world is coming But it's coming with the direct intervention of Jesus. For now we live in the in-between. We live with the tension. We see victories. We see defeats. But we live in the hope of God finally destroying evil at the end. And then finally, the third question. When will justice ever be done for the wrongs that have been committed? And these chapters tell us that the final act of justice is on God's authority. You know, one of the great cries of humanity is for justice. We all want justice. The great accusation that is made against God is why in this world do so many people seem to get away with it. But Revelation 20 reveals a God of justice, who in a final act of authority shows this to the whole world. Now, again, there's a problem here because people read this and they say, well, it looks like people are being judged according to their works, and that poses a question, doesn't it? Does God judge by works or by grace? Tim used this passage this morning in church, didn't he? And this is a very important background to this. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How many times in one sentence can you say the same thing over and over again? You know? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not by works, you can't boast about it. Paul is saying over and over again, do you get the message here, guys? You're saved by grace through faith. No one can boast about it, no one can do anything about it. How does that square with these verses in Revelation, which seem to suggest, for example, verse 13, that we are judged by works? Again, images here that John uses, the image of books. You know, you've got this image here of these ginormous books where records are kept in the old days. You know, this is no little uh, pen drive with information on it. These are these old-fashioned ginormous books that records were kept in. And he says it's like there are two books. There's the book of life, and there is the book of works. But he makes it clear from verse 15 that the crucial book is the book of life. What does this mean? It means that... Judgment is relational. That is, it's on the basis of our relationship with Jesus. Book of life, that's a, that's a common imagery Jesus used. Jesus said, I've come to bring you life. Life is only found in me. So if Jesus on the one hand says, my purpose is to give you life, and that life can only be found in me, why would we suddenly turn it around and say at the end, well actually I'm going to judge you now on how good you've been. This is not pointing towards the balance on a weighing scales, where if the one side outweighs the other, that will determine your eternal destiny. Actually, and again I'm picking up on what Tim said this morning, that is the most insulting, heretical teaching you can give. Because what that says is, Jesus' death on the cross was worthless. If at the end we're going to be judged by what we did, by our works, Jesus' death on the cross was worthless. And that's the dilemma you have to work with if you believe That Revelation, I think, is affirming the truth of the New Testament. That God's final act of judgment will take place and it will be on the basis of a relationship with Jesus. The question is not what do I need to do. The question is what do I do with Jesus? It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Uh, John is saying if you live your life on the basis of works, then at the end of time when your life is, is assessed then that's the basis God will use. And on that basis, you will always fall short. But what he's also saying is if you live your life on the basis of grace, both on your acceptance of grace and your giving of grace, then that's the basis on which I will judge you. And on that basis, grace always wins. You cannot lose. Everyone who trusts in work, says John, will be disappointed. You know, I don't, I don't know if you ever watch The Apprentice. I quite like watching The Apprentice. I think it's great entertainment. Um, but, you, you know, when, when judgment time comes and the final three are hauled in to the boardroom, it's great imagery, isn't it? Before Alan, Prent, Alan, Prent, Alan Sugar, the kind of godlike figure who kind of appears from the back room and sits with his angels on both sides and pronounces judgment on the people. You know the imagery? Because Alan Sugar's Jewish, by the way. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 you know, they talk to the, the camera, sometimes pans to these guys sitting in the waiting room as they face the final exam. And, you know, they're saying to each other, there's no way he's going to get me, you know. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight my corner. I'm going to give 110% and no one's going to root me out. I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to lose. I'm going to be a winner. And some people think that that's the way that they'll approach God at the final judgment. That God is like some eternal Sir Alan Sugar, who they'll be able to out-argue, who they'll be able to make their case for with great aggression and great conviction, and that on that basis they will escape. Can I tell you in all honesty, not wanting to be scary, but wanting to be honest about what scripture reveals about God, that isn't what it will be like. God's judgment is entirely true, entirely honest, entirely fair, entirely just. Do you know the Hallelujah Chorus in in Handel's Messiah? It's from Revelation. And it's sung as a response to judgment. Not a response to rejoicing. The Hallelujah Chorus is sung as a response to judgment. Because God's judgment is always entirely true, entirely honest, entirely fair. There will be no debate, no argument. There will be no trying to win your case. It will just be that God is the ultimate judge, and he will judge right. You know the phrase, the gnashing of teeth? Do you know what that means? The gnashing of teeth is, for Jewish people, was a symbol of regret. It wasn't a symbol of anger or defiance. It was a symbol of regret. You know when uh, you've got something wrong, and you go, Ah! <coughs> how did I get that wrong? And you grind your teeth together and you say, how could I be so stupid? How could I get that wrong? You know, it's the gnashing of teeth. Regret. I got it wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the imagery. <laughs> that in judgment, that will be the only response, unfortunately, is I got it wrong. There will be no defiance, no argument, because God's judgments are just. Not, the regret will not be, I didn't do enough. The regret will be, Why didn't I accept the grace of God in Jesus? And for those people, the judgment will be on the basis of, well, their attitude, really. I know you want me to talk about hell, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Cop out. Except to say this, that the picture of hell in scripture is a very mixed metaphor. You have a lake of fire. Well, how can fire and water live together? You have fire and darkness. How can fire and darkness exist together? So I don't think it's meant to be taken literally. But can I just say this? I think the the, the picture of hell, and whether it's a reality or not, I'm probably going to sit on the fence. Whether we're conscious of it or not, I don't know. But what I do know is this, that if there is a hell, it'll be characterized by simply regret. Regret. I don't know if regret can go on forever and ever. Uh, And I don't know if it'll be a conscious awareness. I just do not know. But I do know this, that the symbol is of a sense of regret, a sense of sadness that we didn't respond to the grace of God that was shown in Jesus. just going to read one thing to finish. You might have heard this, some of you. Uh, It's a very well-known piece called The Long Silence. And I'll just read this to you as a final, final thing. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beating, torture, death. In another group, a negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, Why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hatred. What did God know of all that men had been forced to endure in this world? For God leaves a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader. Chosen because he had suffered most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their verdict was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudicial jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a whole host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of the people assembled. When the last had had pronounced his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. You see, the God who calls us to judgment is not a judge who sits aloof in the courtroom of heaven, but a judge who left the bench, who came down and on behalf of every criminal in history paid the fine for everyone's crimes. And he invites us by grace to accept his Payment of of um, his payment for our crimes, and to live in the light of that in this world, and to trust in it for eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace this evening, above all else, and Lord, we thank you that when we receive your grace into our lives, and when we experience your forgiveness, and when we experience your great love in Jesus, then that casts out all fear. We thank you that that work stands for eternity. And Lord, we pray that we might live our lives in the light of that truth in this coming week. That we might not seek to strive to do our good works, thinking they will make us better people, or they will save us. But that we might rest in the grace of God and live in the light of that grace in ministry, and in service to others. So thank you, Lord, that even in the light of this very serious subject of judgment, that you hold your grace before us, and we pray that we might live in the light of it this week, as we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> and let's pray the grace together as we finish, shall we? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore. Amen. Well I tell you what, do you wanna write, if you've got any questions, shall we kind of think about them right there? And then I'll leave some time next week at the end. Okay. Anything on revelation? <laughs> <laughs> If you want to email me any questions...